Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale, it's day one of MIPCOM 2018. You're joining us in Cannes amid the hustle and bustle of the Marriott Hotel where MIP Junior took place over the weekend. We're going to talk a little bit about that in a moment and look ahead to the next few days with three executives who've each got their own unique take on the international TV business. Frank Falcone is President and Executive Creative Director of Canada's Guru Studio animator of series including Just In Time, Dino Pause and Poor Patrol. Beth Stevenson is founder of Brain Power Studio, another Canadian company whose credits include new series Pony Sitters Club, Julius Jr and a pet-centric TV movie called Fast and Furious. <laughs> Finally, Bruce Kane is the founder and director of BS Animation, the Australian studio behind titles like Monster Beach, Kitty Is Not A Cat, Exchange Student Zero and Ginger Snaps. Welcome everyone, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Frank, perhaps you could start off, how was your MIP Junior? It was fantastic. Um, I've got a big team out this year, so um, I've got marketing here and I've got sales here and I've got a development exec, so we're, we're operating on many fronts, uh, selling some series that are now um, uh, available for uh, linear and, uh, and cable television that was uh, that premiered on Netflix a couple of uh, years back. So. We're launching those shows into the traditional TV market. Uh, so we're, we're, we're seeing a lot of trends towards uh, the sort of collaboration between the VODs and the, the free-to-air channels. Uh, you know, the free-to-air channels are not, they're not dying. They're just taking on different roles. And I think it's nice to see everyone starting to play together after a couple of years of tension uh, after the VODs initially launched. How about you, Beth? Well, I think the weekend was extremely bustling and it was really nice to see some very senior executives coming out, both from the linear channels, but also from the new streaming services. And as Frank was saying too, to watch them kind of work together as opposed to work in opposition. And it's also nice to see those new streaming services come and be a part of these conferences um, because in the past they have, you know, they it's taken them a while to really realize that they can come here to mine the world, which is is really fantastic. Bruce, how was your mid junior? Uh, look, it's been really busy. Uh, ironically, we're here with a live action show, even though we are an animation company that. Uh, that won Mip Junior last year, so we're sort of coming back with that this year. I think um, the fact that you're seeing executives kind of move from television into the streaming services now, and I think that's got a lot to do with how things are changing and people are, as you say, playing together, but they're understanding content creation more rather than just the acquisition side of it, I think. And a, a number of key executives that I've noticed quite recently have moved across from key television positions into streaming services. So that's been a really big change. It feels like an exodus in some ways of, yeah. of, of executives moving over to VOD yeah, totally. with those opportunities. Yeah. But I think that will that will strengthen um, the VODs, but it'll also strengthen the traditional channels that yeah. need to look at their business differently and, so. and understand what their place in that is. Like I look at radio and think, I still listen to Virgin Radio in my car, and there's still a Spotify. Like they all, like, they all coexist in the, in the audio space. And I think the television industry has to sort of grow up and say, like, it's not going to be a battle to the finish. No one's going to destroy yeah. the VOD players. They're they're here to stay, and the traditional channels are, still play a role. Yeah, and I think an important role. So that was the big story of the weekend, as far as you're concerned. I mean, it is the big story, I guess, as far as the industry, the broader yes. industry beyond kids is concerned, and across the week here 
in Cannes, no doubt that topic of conversation is going to come up again and again. You, you were saying that when the VODs first arrived, there was some uncomfortable feeling amongst the traditional TV community. You think that it's it's now moved towards these the sort of beyond the the frenemy to to, to friends? <laughs> They're no longer the Albanian army that they were called in the past. That's that was a ridiculous comment. I think everyone knows that that they that you know we, we have to deal with their strength and their success, and it's not. They're not being bullies, they're just doing a great job of delivering content to people, and people like that service. It's, it's intuitive. Why would you not want to go to a service and find the thing that you want to watch when you want to watch it? I remember when I first came here, uh, started coming, uh, the streaming services, no one knew who was running it. That was generally two to three people yeah, sitting yeah. in Los Angeles making Somewhere. global decisions. <laughs> it was an algorithm, Which actually, just, like, <laughs> just kind of telling everyone what to do. It was, yeah, it, it's, it is very interesting that I think as that's opened out, I think people can find a way in that they understand and have been perhaps used to dealing with TV executives in a certain way, and the streaming services seem to have embraced that. Yeah, it's a relationship, it's a relationship business, yeah. I think. The, the VODs came at it from a more technology point of view, right. and then as they sort of realized that it's a relationship business, they brought yeah. in some, some strong people, and now they're entering into that relationship that a lot of the traditional yes. you know, TV players have had for yeah. decades. And, and consumers and kids and viewers are really making a strong point. I mean, we just looked at uh, a recent chart that listed YouTube and Netflix as the number one and two recognizable brands for children. Um, so it's a very good thing for the linear broadcasters to kind of look and see what they have been doing. And, you know, as the content maker and creator, it's couldn't be a better time in history, I think. That is one of the things that we've been looking at in the magazines that we're distributing here at the market. It's our 21st anniversary. 21 years ago was the year that Netflix launched as a DVD by post rental business. Things have obviously changed dramatically since then. When we asked executives in the run-up to the market what the biggest changes were, that they inevitably cited Netflix as bringing new money into the business, but they also highlighted the impact of YouTube. And perhaps, despite the fact that they're now putting money into the business themselves, they've also taken money out of the business by dint of the fact that that's where younger audiences are migrating to, I guess. How do you see that that kind of paradox as, as far as the streams are concerned for, for, for the business? I think the proliferation of more people with the ability to actually pay for content to be made is an incredible thing um, for producers and independent producers. I think that the wild thing about Netflix is, and you mentioned that they did start as a DVD service and they'd mail it to you and they'd mail it back. And I was recently involved with the business case of Netflix and at some point in 2009, they went to Blockbuster, not once but twice. To, to see if they could be a good strategic fit. And Blockbuster actually on their analyst call in 2008 said, Redbox and Netflix are not even on our radar. So that just shows you that within a decade, how that can change. And I think that technology again, as a tool and to be able to we don't know on your 31st birthday, you know, who will we be sitting to talk about and what other players are going to come to the fold, which is, I think, what's really, really exciting. And I know people say that it's challenging to launch CP out of a, out of a VOD and, or launch sort of a brand out of it, but I think we're going to get there. Everyone's working hard to figure out what that is. Um, but it is challenging because VODs are, kind of, I describe them as libraries. I mean, you're sort of like, you go to the library and no one's telling you, 
check out this new book in aisle 44. Like, no one's screaming at you to go check out a book. It's, it's quiet. You, know, you, you go to the front, and there's a book at the front desk on, a, on, a, on, a, on an easel, and that's the book that they're featuring for the week. So it's a, it's a quiet, passive service, but there's a lot of volume available content. And it's there forever, which is, you know, the Netflix stuff that we have done. You know, Pony Sitters mm. will sit there now, Pony Sitters Club for next generation, Always next generation. Always accessible to anyone. So exactly. it breaks those demographic uh, restrictions we had with channels where you're in a block and no one's seeing it because you're in the wrong block or you're in the wrong time slot. Mm -hmm. That's all gone now. It's always available. I think that's very true. I, just, uh, I did have a very interesting conversation with one of the major networks yesterday in preschool, mm -hmm. which is they're very, very worried about the impact on YouTube, coming through YouTube, of extreme low budget nursery rhymes with a train that looks familiar to everyone <laughs> or whatever. And the eyeballs going on that, particularly in the APAC region, is actually really hurting ratings and it, that's that sort of cheaper style content that mm -hmm. I won't name names but you know and it's very effective and it works with kids but that can be made on a shoestring rights free nursery rhymes no one is attempting to do the quality that most of the people here are attempting to do that is an interesting model I think moving forward for broadcasters mm -hmm. where the eyeballs are massive but the product itself seems to be hitting its core market but with a very, very low budget. For major networks, they are really feeling that bite. And what do you do? I think it's possible to make YouTube a business, but it's difficult and rare. Yeah. So it wouldn't be a... With a first-run brand, it's, for sure. It's really for tough. Sure. It's a diff very different yeah. model. What proportion of your business would you say these days is made up by streamers? And, and, and how much of it about traditional broadcasters that, that sort of seem to get ignored in this conversation for example we don't talk about the, the linear broadcasters that are fighting so hard to to stay in the game when they're under pressure well we're pretty divided up in terms of our originals there's, there's a vod partner on pretty much everything we're doing in originals in terms of the other partnership work we do with spin master and viacom they they're doing their own sort of deals with the vod's but uh, we work with you know toy companies we work with channels we work with vod's we've had a pretty interesting mix of of um, partners for, that help us fund our content. From our side of it, not a great deal at this point. Uh, we're still, we're working a lot with Cartoon Network, Warner Brothers, and obviously they're, they're dealing in the way they wish to deal with uh, streaming. Um, obviously looking to get their catalogs out there and be able to, to uh, do a similar thing, I think, and they've certainly got the um, archive to be able to do it. Um, I, I still find, certainly coming in from Australia and even at this market it's very hard to get something forward until you've got a local broadcaster and it's somewhat traditional kind of model as a uh, investor or, or partner it's quite I find it quite difficult to get to the next stage we don't currently work with Netflix as yet not for any particular reason it's just um, the way things have panned out and so we're still really working quite a traditional model like with Kitty's Not a Cat that's an Australian broadcaster government funding, etc., and um, you know, distribution as it traditionally was, you know. So I suppose my, my point there is that I don't think traditional broadcasters are completely out of the loop in, in any way, shape or form. Not at all. Really Not at all. And I think that we're about 50-50, and I think that really, as leaders of our company, what we need to do mm. is future-proof our company. And the thing about sort of significant companies and in the fold. And again, if you historically look back, 
um, you know, at Netflix when it started its rise and, and Amazon that where they were even in 2006 and where they are now is significant. I mean, Amazon is a great, you know, they were a $17 billion company in 2006 and now they're currently a trillion. Mm. Um, so, I mean, that is obviously going to be a very good partnership and therefore they, ha they have, you know, really great resources. However, a lot of our, our consistent uh, uh, clients are really those traditional cable nets that have a following that's exceedingly loyal. The, the primetime business that we're doing mostly is output deals in individual territories with with buyers that say this works for us. And and although you know it might in prime time you do you can reach a bit of an older audience. They they tend to be a bit more forgiving than the kids and family space in terms of technology and that they're still very comfortable paying fees for monthly cable and and how their households are run. Um, but I do think that. Again, Again, what we want to do to keep our companies as strong as they can be as content makers is to make sure that we're diversified across all of these different OTT, all the different services, so to, that if something happens in the world, um, that we have, you know, that we can continue to produce and to create, which is, I think, creatively what where we want to be in. Interesting. When we launched our show True on Netflix, we launched it in a sort of theatrical way in, in Los Angeles and had social media engagement and we had like, you know, 650 million social media impressions, but it was all done sort of through Twitter and, you know, sort of a, the digital buzz that you create about the show existing. And Pharrell was there. He was, he was one of the investors in the show. When we launched on CBC Kids, it was like launching the show again in a very different way because it's a traditional free-to-air broadcaster. And so we launched with the traditional supports and the promotions. Right. And they had CBC Kids Day, we brought a mascot on stage. So there's definitely an audience community that's social in the, in the traditional uh, broadcaster space. Right. And in, in, at Netflix, it's a sil you, there's silence. You don't really know. I describe it as if you're in a band, you're playing to a room, and you don't know who's in the room. There's a wall in front of you, and, you're, and you know, if anyone's played as a musician, you're like, should we change up the set list? I don't know. Are people coming in, or are they leaving the room? Are they lined up or not? So not getting any audience data makes it very difficult for you to change up your programming or change up your show, even, because you don't have any feedback. So you need that, that outreach, whether through social media, which is hard for preschoolers, or through a traditional broadcaster that can demonstrate um, where your audience is. So when we had CBC Kids Day, um, they had all their characters, their PJ Maxx and their Daniel Tiger mascots up. And uh, we had a huge lineup around True of kids who wanted to meet her and see her. So we got you know, evidence of how the show is doing in terms of emotional engagement. And, that, and that's what we're lacking in the VOD, is we're lacking some sort of feedback mechanism that helps us make better shows. Final thoughts, just looking ahead to the next few days, what are going to be the big stories down here in Cannes, looking ahead to the next 21 months, is it, is it Disney's OTT service? Is it 21st century Fox becoming a part of that company and what that means for Hulu? I mean, what, Apple's entry, we haven't even talked about that as well. Facebook, there's plenty of others as well. What, what's the, the big story for you this week and looking ahead? For us, it's about, it's about how, to, how to make sure your show is discoverable because there'll be such a volume content being produced yeah, and if as producers we there's no awareness of our show you're just part of a sea of content and you know you look at the the app store and everyone anyone who's in digital and has done games knows you can't just put an app you can't upload your app to the app store and then say there we've done it it's a drop a, a drop in the ocean you have to work hard 
to market your own content and make sure that you're finding your audience or you will be forgotten. So finding that shelf space and finding that, that you know, ability to initially engage with what you're doing is every producer's responsibility. I think it'll be, look, moving forward, just picking up on what we were talking about earlier, that lack of feedback from um, streaming services to creators, uh, obviously that's about to change, just picking up on what we were discussing earlier, that you're getting development executives in those positions now, and there will be notes coming back, and one would assume that you're working in a much more collegiate type of manner, which, which will be fascinating, because uh, as to where that actually heads, that's a model that I think will become really kind of powerful. I mean, not working without notes and stuff's kind of great <laughs> sometimes, but co-developing with a broadcast partner, very important for a lot of producers, you know, particularly a lot of younger producers with the first show, and there's real value to be had there. I think the rights issues, it's, it's a big deal, it's not new. If you want to work with, you know, Turner or Disney or something, you know, they're generally going to take it's going to be a pretty bad rights position for you. And you're always constantly weighing up the exposure of that. And one single uh, source of funding is kind of great. But what are you giving away for that? Um, I think their entry into the marketplace as streamers themselves is going to be huge. Again, there is a lot of noise in terms of the distribution outlets and where you can where you can put your shows. But to Frank's point, I think just really being focused on bringing great content out there and understanding how to market that to buyers, how to in turn market it to viewers. And really, the thing about those new services is the viewer, the kids, the families at home, you know, the people who are deciding on their devices what they're watching. The fact that we have a, a, a clearer path to them is very exciting. And to your point on rights, where they say now in a contract that we sell our rights now for the universe and beyond. So I hope one day that our our projects are going to be seen on Mars, which I, I yeah. think that there's probably a good chance on that. <laughs> okay, well, thank you very much, Frank, Beth and Bruce. That's all we've got time for in this episode. Thank you very much for, for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Jonathan. Don't forget to stay up to date with all the latest industry developments by following C21 online, on Twitter, and on mobile. Thank you for listening.